0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Sue Barber, author, former IT director for a Fortune 500 company, turn executive coach, and this is the Visibility Factor podcast, where we explore how to raise your visibility and play bigger at work and in life. We'll explore key topics and welcome guests that help you shift your thinking about yourself so you can see new possibilities for your leadership. I'm on a mission to create a visibility movement for leaders to show their value and be seen for their true talent. Are you ready to take the next step towards a higher level of visibility for yourself? Let's go. Today's episode of the Visibility Factor podcast is brought to you by Amplify You, the ultimate program designed to unleash your full potential and amplify your success. Imagine having a personal coach cheering you on, guiding you through a journey of self-discovery, and helping you break free from those limiting beliefs that have been holding you back. That's exactly what Amplify You is all about. Whether you're a leader now or aspiring to be one, this program is your ticket to a more confident, empowered you. It's like having a supportive friend in your corner encouraging you to dream big. It's about having the career success that you want and creating a life you truly deserve. Amplify You offers a unique experience to help you build the confidence to tackle any challenge life throws your way. If you're interested in learning more about the program, please visit susanmbarber.com and click on the menu item Programs. Are you ready to transform your life and your career? Let's make it happen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Visibility Factor podcast. This is Sue Barber, your host. Today, I am thrilled to bring another top three author to the show, and she is amazing. I just read her book, and I know you're going to love it. It's going to help you so much. I was just on a show last night where people were talking about their challenges, and as I was reading her book, I thought, this is what people need. I'm so excited to bring Marie-Elaine Pelletier to the show today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Sue. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I'm so excited
0: to have this conversation with you and talk about your book with everyone, but I'd love to have you do an introduction of yourself first so everybody can get a a little bit of background about you.
1: Yes, yes. Um, So I am a registered psychologist uh, in a couple of provinces up here in Canada. I live on the West Coast. I am from the East Coast, hence the French long, complicated name. (laughs) Um, But after doing uh, uh, some of my training in psychology, I also paired it with some training in business and And then early in my career, I moved in um, leadership roles from very junior ones to middle management to the C-suite. And I worked both in private and public sectors. I was then recruited by Sun Life Financial to work on their mental health strategy, then their mental, physical, financial health strategy. And for the past few years um, in my own business, doing uh, speaking, executive coaching, and still have a small practice as psychologist. A lot. (laughs)
0: A lot. And I forgot to mention, she goes by MH to keep it simple for everybody, which uh, is is a little easier for me to say all at once. So we're going to call her MH during this show today. So everybody uh, know, which um, from your assistant said that stands for mental health too. So it works perfectly, right? <laughs> who, who knew? Who knew? What? But yeah, it, were very it smart. <laughs> uh, so, I would love to hear a little bit about your book. It's called The Resilience Plan. And I would love to hear a little bit about how you thought about this book, what you were hoping to do with this book, why you wrote it, and why you think it's going to really help people.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it emerged Um Bit naturally, so some people, you know, always have known that they were going to write a book, maybe something like this. That was not me. I was doing my thing. And uh, some people were telling me I might want to do this. And I was like, no, there's not no way. Um, But what happened is, as I was working with clients uh, using a lot of what I now have in the book, but as I was working with them, many said uh, things like, I wish I knew all this before. I'm really glad I know this now, moving forward for the rest of my life, but I wish I could have known this earlier. I wish I could have known this at the beginning of my career. And then hearing this uh, a bit more often at some point, um, this led naturally to me deciding to to write the book so that it could lead um, to more people connecting with this information, using it and saving themselves time, pain and uh, even burnout at times. And it is in university and uh, many university bookstores for early professionals, which I'm very excited to see it there. But the idea of the book then is to bring elements of what we know from psychology and from business together for people to, it's almost like distilling in, in uh, very succinct ways, what each of us need to have in order to create our customized strategic resilience plan. So that's what the book does. It's uh, very practical. Um, that's what people tell me it does. And that was very much my goal. And uh, that that's the impact I wanted to have. I want people to think more strategically, to talk more strategically and to take actions that are more strategic. About their resilience. Uh, so, when I was reading your book,
0: one of the things that really got me excited is how you talk about creating a resilience plan for yourself and that you really need to be intentional about it. You can't just, you know, hope in a prayer and, and wing your life, right? You need to be prepared. So, help me understand what really drove you to see that as the solution for people.
1: Yeah. It's a, um, a very, and um, frequently, because I work with these fabulous professionals and leaders, like all of us, we're busy, we get things done, you know, all this. And and often these individuals have an expertise that they've taken years to learn, right? They did training and then the the, the years of experience behind them. So, and what they do is complex. Okay. And so then sometimes they would <laughs> tell me, you know, that can't be that complicated, MH. Like I seriously, what what's my problem? I've been dealing with all these things. I'm doing very complicated things. Or are you saying that just my resilience, you know, is needing attention? And uh, yes, I am. And then would expre- uh, express some of what we know from research and best practice and where the gaps are. And so it's as if in the absence of having heard this information, heard this research, knowing about all this, we assume that resilience is just part of who we are. And therefore, obviously, we don't need to do anything about it, deliberate or other. And we think it's uh, as needed, or if I have time, or sure, it's great to do the things that would, yeah, right, uh, you know, optimize my physical and mental health. Yeah, yeah, the people, yeah, yeah, all this, Um, but it's as if they assume that uh, they themselves don't really need to. And some of that is very understandable. They have achieved so much um, that they have seen themselves perform without doing all these things, without that deliberate attention to their resilience. They have been told by people around them that they are the rock. And so they can do anything, go through everything. They don't need anything. They're supporting others and that works. And so you get to a point where you believe you are naturally resilient. You believe you are naturally invincible. And therefore, of course, there's no need to take any deliberate action. And so, but if we get real about all this, that yes, we've gone through all these things and there are reasons why earlier in our career, we actually did not need to pay that much deliberate attention. It overall worked out. But you get to a point, partially age, partially amounts of demands, levels of demands, timing of demands, all kinds of things, a context that in which we do need to pay deliberate attention. And that's these are examples of mental traps that people get into that make them not pay deliberate attention, where we very much mm-hmm. need to. Wow, that's so powerful.
0: You know, I thought maybe we should step back for just a second, just in case people want to understand a little bit more about what you mean by resilience, I think it might be helpful for you to define it from your point of view so that we can all be aligned with what that means. I think that would be a good idea.
1: Very great point, because even if we look at the academic literature, there are various uh, definitions. And so, but one that is used very often and I use as well is our ability to go through adversity and come out even stronger. So, ability to go through adversity and by adversity it could be something acute which often we think about but it can also be something chronic. So, a demand that's there over a very long period of time like for example the pandemic that's something that's been there various levels and all this it's not completely gone even now and then there are other chronic demands. Some of us well, all of us are facing some degrees of Uh, more artificial intelligence in our professional and personal lives. And that will likely increase. That is a chronic demand. Whether you see it very positively or very negatively or in between or combination, even things that uh, may be positive, if it's a change, it represents a demand and we we need to consider it as such. So anyway, going through adversity, coming out even stronger. So there's an element of growth mindset, of of learning from it um, and taking that with us as we continue to move forward.
0: I mean, one of the things I thought was really very interesting in how you framed the book is around economic terms of supply and demand and helping people understand how, you know, supply, you know, where you have an abundance of things or demand where you may not have enough and you have to try to figure these things out and you apply it in terms of resilience and energy and how energetic things may pull energy away from us or give us energy, depending on what it is. So can you explain a little bit about how that came up for you? I think it's a really interesting way to
1: describe it and probably not something a lot of people have considered. We, We just, you're right. We just don't think about this again, because often we're almost, um, we almost have an optimistic bias, right? We think, oh yes, it will go fine. I can go through all this. These demands are not that big or they don't even exist really moving on. (laughs) And then we're just, you know, that very driven way of doing things is wonderful. Of course, that's what uh, allows so many people to create, to be entrepreneurs, to be intrapreneurs, whatever, like to make things move forward. That's amazing. And we want to keep this and pair it with a realistic appraisal Uh, of really what's our context looking like right now. And what most of the time, these fabulously capable resource for people do is they minimize the demands. Oh yeah, it's not that much. And they actually um, overestimate the supply they have. Oh yeah, I exercise. Oh yes, I eat well, I do these things. And then I say, great, in the past week, how many walks? And then they say, well, in the past couple of weeks, it's been extreme, extremely busy, so zero. But in general, da, 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 other things. Well, yeah, that's the thing. See, we're underestimating where we're protect the, those protective factors, the things we would do that would increase our resilience, and we're minimizing the demands. And so what I'm saying is, we're gonna stay fabulous, that stays. We're not moving away from this. We're gonna keep doing most of the things we're doing. What is important, and really it's no different from what we would do in our work. No, regardless of the profession, the roles we're in, when we're looking to solve a problem, I don't have not met anyone yet who would say, don't tell me any, any information or just give me the high level and I'll go figure out the solution right? We don't do this. We go in and we say, I want to know everything. Give me visibility. I want to see the things that everyone else is not seeing. I want to see all angles. I want the numbers. I want like different things. And then we go. So same thing here. We just want to have very good visibility on our actual sources of demands, our actual sources of supply, so that as we move through our reflection and our planning, we can actually get to a strategic resilience plan that is realistic, completely possible to implement. And that's what people tell me, they say, going in, I was thinking this was going to be big and complicated and heavy. And uh, no, it isn't, it isn't. It leaves people with very concrete actions they can take starting now. Yeah, I I was not
0: sure what to expect until I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is perfect, right? And you talk about the very small amounts of time you need to spend building your plan, and then just checking in on it so that it's doable. It's not something that's overcomplicated that's going to take a bunch of time.
1: No, and no one has that time. And I had my reader in mind, so mm-hmm. I know they don't. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: so there's a few terms that you use in the book that I want to dive into because I haven't heard them called this before, but I love them. The first one is compassion fatigue. Can you explain that and how it impacts leaders?
1: Yes. Well, that 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 term, the compassion fatigue, has existed for a while, but none of us were really focused on it because it is a term that was used more in certain professions, like mm-hmm. healthcare, a bit education, but even more healthcare, because at its source, it refers to the demands on us, the emotional demands on us, when we are spending a lot of time being compassionate towards others, which, yeah, in healthcare, a patient maybe sharing a difficult health situation, we're reacting the compassionate way, that kind of thing. But over time, that can be very demanding and draining unless the person protects themselves and find all the ways they need to, to do that. And then that became a ter- term that was a bit more present for people in education, Similarly, kids coming to school with more challenges, teachers experiencing challenges and loving their role, but then finding it very challenging in a number of ways, that kind of thing. But it is as if, and in some ways it's actually good uh, that it broadened to many more roles, but particularly with the pandemic, with all of us mm, feeling the impacts in different ways at higher and lower levels, part of the, and also being virtual, right? More than before it really became clear that managers really wanted to make sure they check in with people on their teams and that they outreach, all kinds of things that would have been good before, and some of them were doing them before. But part of what happened is the response this time, given pandemic, was mostly difficult. People were going through difficult times, challenges. It was rarely, sometimes yes, but in a lower proportion, very positive. And so, If you enter these conversations saying, oh yes, I want, yes, I want to hear, I want to ask and I want to help or whatever, but you have not realized the degree to which it could impact you, then you keep going until it does. And that's where compassion fatigue also comes up for leaders. And so for a leader, that these conversations we have with our team members, which at times sometimes unexpectedly will be fairly demanding emotionally, that represents a demand. One that we want to have, it's part of our roles, it's a good one to have. And we want to recognize it as such so that we can take the appropriate steps to make sure we're protecting ourselves, protecting the amount of conversations we have on the same day or closed days, or um, how how do we enter this conversation? How do we monitor ourselves during them? All kinds of things that can be done to maintain a good direction but one that could also add to the demands of a leader. Yeah, I don't think
0: people consider that it's even happening until they're at the point where there's probably too much. And I, I've seen the same, you know, I think there were some things that came out in LinkedIn where people were saying to leaders, ask how your people are. And most people would say, I'm fine. And then ask the next question, but how are you really? Right? Like, how are you really doing? Because I think there has always been this, I'm fine, you know, don't worry. I don't need to tell you everything. Everything's good. But I think there's so many things that were happening in so many places that not asking the question almost felt like you were ignoring that person and what they could have been going through. So I think it, I love, I didn't love the pandemic, not at all, but I love that it changed the way people started to see people started to be okay with a dog coming on camera or your kids showing up in your office, you know, it changed the way that people saw business a little bit to be more human and less I have to be professional. I can't do anything that's not perfectly professional all the time. I think it started to see people as just people who have real lives outside of the office
1: and they're trying to deal with a lot of stuff. Yes. And that's immensely important also, as we move forward, uh, we were mentioning it earlier with even more presence of artificial intelligence and how a lot of actions, supports, parts of roles can come from AI. And there are some supports that can only come from a human as a leader. And that's one of them, paying attention to people as people. So can we just go a little deeper on that
0: for a second because it seems to be the uh, the chat everyone wants to have. So what do you really see from your point of view and what you've researched? What do you really see is going to change from a from a leader's standpoint for using AI in some ways or do you see it replacing leaders at some point in some ways?
1: Mhm. Well, there are many angles uh, to this. It's uh it's an area where we're learning possibly in the most fabulously interdisciplinary way ever. I'm, I have a, a keynote exactly on that topic topic, the psychological impacts of AI in our workplaces. and I'm you know, I always work with the literature that's existing. And in this case, I say it that way very deliberately because there is little <laughs> that is existing. But in this case, it comes from, yeah, psychology, technology, human resources, uh, organizational health, uh, workplace health management, business management, and ethics. So it's like, you know, a huge uh, combination of areas. Some of what we're seeing at this point is looking at more at the tasks as opposed to the overall role. Uh, So some tasks uh, may be able to be delegated to this uh, AI new colleague uh, that that we have. And it's an evolution of roles. Often what uh, we're seeing is if we were differentiating between say a manager who was looking at the logistics, the numbers, the optimization, that kind of thing, and the leader who is influencing and motivating and all of these aspects. And I know sometimes of course, this is combined and that's where we want to think about tasks as opposed to roles necessarily. But if we define these two that way, then more tasks from the manager would be able to be done uh, by AI and then leaving the leader here with an ability to focus even more on what's unique um, that can be uniquely brought by a leader getting lots of support and information, say, from from AI. So that's from a leadership perspective. In the workplace, possibly the most important guideline is to have a lot of conversations. Um, And it does connect with some of what you were mentioning earlier. You know, when you were talking about how when we ask people how they're doing, how are you really doing, and that kind of thing. And so here, uh, what we're saying is we will want leaders to be very much focused on people and to communicate so it's not just oh the wave is coming let's see what happens let's get ahead of it and have conversations about how that's going and the more we've set up openness to hearing different opinions maybe some that are even different from what the leader here thinks uh, the more we've created a psychologically safe workplace in in so many ways the more even if one person out of 20 here believes there is a ethical risk with this particular task going to AI, we want that person to say it so that we can have these conversations. And this is part of what generates more confidence in how we proceed with it as opposed to uh, being worried, which we also know from research just makes logically, but we see it from research makes everything more challenging. I love the way you've described it. I hope it proceeds in
0: that manner with the open conversations and some transparency about what leaders at the you know the senior levels are seeing and how they're planning to implement some things the more we can have some transparency around that i think the less stories that people will create on their own you know the more information they know so a couple of things i wanted to dive into that you were also had in the book one was around people being able to take off for mental health reasons being able to have the conversations with their managers or being able to have the conversations with HR, and I would love to hear your perspective on this because a lot of people that I have talked to, uh, some have no fear and are willing to go forward, regardless of what is said to them or what they're you know what people think. Others have a ton of fear around even just bringing it up it, that they'll be you know considered with a little black mark next to their name and may not be able to do it or make it let go or, you know, there's just
1: a lot of fear around it. So I would love to hear how you see it. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends and it depends (laughs) on the context uh, in part. At the source though, so we are here as individuals and if at some point it looks like our health may not allow us to be at work, the first part to this is to consult with registered professionals. So your physician, your psychologist here, so that you can get that external uh, and professional opinion and guidance on what the next steps should be. So first, from a health perspective, that's what we wanna do. In terms of which information then gets shared with your employer, what do you share? Because the system itself will more share a requirement from a health perspective to be absent. That's really what it is. But then to your point, there is this option for us to bring it forward and more transparently to, to our leader. And we know that, I mean, instinctively that makes sense, but we actually seen research in that direction, that the more I trust my leader, the more likely I am to bring forward a bit more information. Logical, but we know this from research. So if you are a leader who wants to be trusted uh, to hear these kinds of stories, how do you do this? You don't just say, oh, trust me, talk to me or whatever you have to walk the talk. That is practically the only way you will develop that trust. It will have to take time. And it includes things like sharing at times your own challenges, your own vulnerabilities. And now you may be thinking, well, I don't like that or I don't have any of those. Fine, here's a way to do that. For example, let's say you you have a sport that you like to practice that makes you feel good. You're a cyclist maybe, or you run or you go for a hike in the woods or whatever. When you come back to the office the following week, when people ask you what you did on the weekend, instead of just saying, oh, I went for this amazing whatever activity, instead say, I make sure on a regular basis that I invest in my resilience or my mental health. And what I did this weekend for this is I made sure even though I was tired or didn't really feel like going out or it was raining, I made sure I kept my running date with my good friend, Sue. We went, had a great chat, and I was with someone I I enjoy spending time with, and we were outside, and we were both being active. Wonderful. See, now I've sent a different message, and I didn't have to share like an immense vulnerability of mine, but I did share how important this is for me and how proactive I am. That's how we build that trust. So you'll be more likely to talk to a leader that has these kinds of conversations. If the person is very worried, that's usually because there isn't that trust. Or sometimes it's the opposite. You've heard them say, oh my God, this person's so weak, like they are depressed or something like this. Well then, no, you're you're correct. <laughs> Your instinct is right. It is not a good idea to go try to speak to this person right now because not only it's not going to be well received, but then you're, you're right. You'll have to deal with the impact of it. So you have to go and get your team here, your physician, your psychologist, if you have access to an employee and family assistance program, other supports you have in your life, your mentor, a peer that you trust, a family, a friend, someone from your religion that you trust. Build all this here to help you make your decision about how you're going about this part of the support. But then if you're the leader, yes, it's good to invest there to be part of that team. I love the way you
0: framed that, that if they start to talk about it and why they did that, you know, hike or whatever it is, or the run, I think it just sets a great example for the other person without even having to say, you know, I totally believe in my mental health and resilience. <laughs> you don't have to say that. We just say it's something I really think is important and I want to do it for myself. And it just sets an example that it's okay. Same thing, you know, for people to take vacation. If a leader takes vacation on a regular basis or leaves the office, you know, in a normal time, it sets the tone that that is also what you should do versus the other. So having said that, I want to dive into the opposite situation where, uh, and for many years, it was expected in my world that you work a lot of hours. And because of what we were doing, some of that was expected. Uh, But also some of it was just the norm. And a lot of people worked a lot of hours. I remember going to one location and I thought, oh, it's five o'clock. Nobody's leaving. 5.30. Nobody's leaving. Six o'clock. Nobody's leaving. 6.30. People start to pack up. And I thought, oh my gosh, is that is that the norm here? Is it 6.30 every day? So, you know, I couldn't do that. I had daycare. But at some point, I started to wonder what is normal anymore in terms of hours for people to work. So I'm curious how you're seeing that because are we going to get to a shift like where you're talking about where it's more normalized to talk about resilience and having more normal hours to alleviate people from moving to a place of burnout?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it's um, so. There, there are s- so many different contexts. There are work contexts where it's overall, um, perhaps always, the encouraged, and most people know that there will be phases where it is busier and phases where it's a bit more normal. Um, like uh, sometimes in pharma, sometimes in technology, sometimes in uh, management consulting, you'll have different overall high expectation that we're, we're working a lot. And there are moments where it's even more and sometimes where we can sort of balance things off a little bit. And so um, and then there are other workplaces where it's moved to entirely virtual, very clear hours, not working outside of these hours. That's what they recruit based on. That's what people get. And not just, you know, as sort of more junior roles, all levels of roles, this is what's respected. And that's the way it is because they can. They can. It's, in some industries, it actually is possible to do it this way. In some others, it isn't. So it has to be managed uh, differently in different contexts. What I think we're seeing is an overall movement towards more, more leaders, more everyone as part of the team, but definitely more leaders paying more attention to the creative ways in which we can maintain the high level of availability to our clients, uh, the high level of service, quality, creativity, whatever is that. That, that the service or products that we're providing, and at the same time, be creative in how we support people's health, <laughs> physical, mental, and you know their resilience and all this. It requires attention because in many contexts, it needs a change from before. Um, in some contexts, senior management will talk these words, the reality will be different from what we're hearing, but they're starting to talk these words, that's good. And then more and more people in the higher level of management, will sometimes because they have no choice, sometimes because it is their strong belief, they've done a burnout before, they don't need another one. So they'll actually implement more solid boundaries and see if this can live in this work culture. And surprise, sometimes it can. Um, When it can, in my experience, they do still feel like they're going against the current obviously because they know the dominant discourse here but very often it actually starts building so sue over there in this other state is doing it i'm over here in this other state or other country and i am doing this a bit more we end up connecting sharing our experience and then a few more do it it builds and so sometimes that's possible and sometimes sometimes it's not sometimes the way to uh continue to evolve on that front is to change organization, change team and and find those that will have a culture better aligned uh, with where you are. So it varies. Do you think it will change
0: um, from a generational standpoint? Because a lot of the earlier career leaders now are looking for organizations that allow them to work maybe four days a week or to work at a company that has purpose or, or only work eight to five. Uh, do you think that will shift because of them coming into the
1: workforce in bigger numbers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, it makes sense, and and often they come, they say these these things, this other generation, and then the other generations say, oh, we love actually all this. Yes, it works for us, <laughs> so it's a great influence. Um, it it's adjustments both ways right? because sometimes yes, um, say and of course. There are some things that are general to say the uh, generations coming in the workplace right now, some things are common to them, recognizing that within here, there is lots of differences as well. So um, not everyone will be the same, of course, Um, but as a cohort, they have been influenced by similar beliefs communicated to them through social media uh, and then just society around them. So there are some things that uh, often they will share as a majority. Then they come in this workplace and there are also adjustments uh, that they need to make, additional learnings that that, um, only this environment can provide to them. So I think the more as different groups, different perspectives, whether it's generational or coming from a different role or all kinds of reasons, um, can be brought in that conversation to see how can we Uh, attain the best objectives possible for our work in our performance and be healthy in how we do it. So we can derive meaning and um, be, be satisfied with, with our work.
0: Yeah. I mean, it all comes back to conversations (laughs) again, right? Just having real conversations about what's happening or what people are thinking. And I, so many times there's just the speed of work and the overwhelm and those just are not happening so I think the more people that are open to having those, uh, at least exploring them, I think would be uh, a great service for an organization. And you actually and save,
1: the save time. You know, sometimes we, we think right. we're, we're so, to your point, we're so busy, we don't have time. Yet, if we actually paused and have this conversation, things would move way faster after. We mm-hmm. know this as leaders, because a few times we've done it, we can probably do it more. And the more we're planful about it, you know, whether it's saying, I will make sure I do this at least every two weeks and put a check mark to remind myself that I've done it. Sometimes you need to do this because things are so busy that you could decide every two weeks. Sounds good. First thing you know, it's been three months. You have not (laughs) done any of this. Time has flown by. (laughs) Time has flown by. So uh, Mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be long, but it makes a big difference if you have it.
0: Yeah. So what is your big hope? and dream for this book?
1: The, what we were discussing earlier, truly just seeing, hearing more people talk more strategically about their resilience, think more strategically about it. Take that moment to step back and just adjust as the context uh, changes, Um, because if they do, it changes everything. Um, it changes how they feel, how they think about everything else, their satisfaction, their health, and uh, and I know this because I've seen this uh, with people I've worked with. One of them was actually in. The, so when you write a book, you may sometimes people will do workshops about the book as you're writing it to test some of the ideas, test some of the the uh, the exercises, things like that. I happen to have a person who was there in January a couple of years back did the workshop and all this, then connected with me and said, could you come and give this workshop to my group of leaders? So in-person workshop, travel, do this. Okay, yes. So I did that. She happened to be there, initially sitting at the back, thinking that she was just going to listen for the others to receive the the, the workshop. But of course, she ended up deciding to to participate in it and do the exercises again. And after she came to me and said, Okay, the most amazing thing just happened. I did it again, realizing that the plan, as I had made it in January, I had implemented it. My context was now different, and I was ready for the next iteration of my plan. And that's beautiful. That's exactly what um, uh, how it's it's I had envisioned it, um, and that's what happens. That's what people say. So, I just want to see more people do this, including exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs>
0: I I think we can all benefit from it, right? And just taking the time. That's what I loved about it. It reminded me a little bit of mine when how I laid out some things in my steps too, because it's about slowing down, reflecting, taking them, you know, a few moments to put together a plan that you can actually check in on on a regular basis and then improve or, you know, go to the next level when you've already attained what you wanted in the first plan. So I think that's amazing. What a great testimonial for you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So where can people contact
1: you if they want to reach out to you and learn more about you and the book? Yes, uh, theresilienceplan.com will get you to everything that I do. Um, if you want to connect on LinkedIn, always love to do that. Or Instagram, these are the two where I'm most active. Um, but it's also nice not only to, yes, I'd love to connect with you and, and be, be uh, connected that way. It's also a way as whatever your role is, whether you're formally in a leadership role or a member of a team, if this topic speaks to you, when you connect with people like me and there are others who are um, sharing information and, and that kind of thing, it's so easy to you contribute just with a like or a repost or things like this. So if something connects with you, you you just add your voice to it. And, uh, and that way you contribute to that conversation so that's um, um that's i know i do this uh sometimes with others that i'm following that resonate um and that's an easy way to start adding your voice if you're newer on that front yeah well, that's a great great bit of
0: advice there for people so we definitely want to amplify as many voices as possible for both of us uh it's definitely what i see too Okay, well, we're going to transition into what I call the rise up and be visible quick tips. So these are four questions that I ask every guest. Uh, so I can't wait to hear your answers. The first one visibility is if you can fill in the blank and tell me why you feel that's
1: the right answer. Oh, so um, visibility is making sure you share what you want. And I would say that's important because. Um, And I was speaking with a great guest recently about this, and I think it's very true. Um, Sometimes we think the next great thing will happen. And if we have not shared uh, where our interests are, and it connects obviously very well with content of your book, which I love, um, you want to say it. We sometimes make the assumption that it's obvious or that they should know or that we've said it once so they remember. No, say it often, all the time, each time you can. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear of, well,
0: if I ask for what, what I want, what if they don't think I'm ready? I said, if they don't think you're ready, then you know that. <laughs> and better to know than to keep wishing for it to happen. Yeah. So yes, I absolutely agree. hundred percent. The second question, uh, what are you doing to be visible?
1: Uh-huh. Well, these days, because I just got the book out, um, it's a lot of Um, sharing information uh, about the book Um, but in other areas of my work in my speaking work you do the things that will help in the case of of speaking people organize events um, see whether you're the the right fit so I've updated my demo reel recently it's coming out in the next month (laughs) Um, so that's there so these are some examples
0: Nice. And what's the best career or leadership advice you've
1: received? Uh, Follow your nose. Yeah. That's the, that was uh, that instinct of, sounds like you want to do this, do it. Um, And it it worked. Uh, It worked for me. Um, It was, you know, I've been told sometimes, oh, like my research over 20 years ago was on telehealth. And um, at the time, doing anything via video conferencing was unheard of internet was not fast enough. I had to use six telephone lines to transmit video information. It was a big deal. And so people were calling this, Oh, that's ambitious. Um, which at the time being ESL, I actually thought it was a positive comment. It wasn't in research. If you're told your project is ambitious, it's not a good idea, but, um, uh, but I followed my nose and, um, it worked and that's, that was a good one. And it got you to where you are now. So that's absolutely what you should have Mm -hmm. done.
0: All right. Last question. Uh, what's a book that you've read recently or you're reading now that you would recommend?
1: I'm going to, well, I would recommend yours. Um, the visibility factor. That's one I've, um, uh, i that I'm reading now and uh, listening to now, and it's you talking, which I love. Thanks. So, um, <laughs> uh, so yes, I would. Uh, the other one I would recommend, it's not the reading now, but I do recommend it very often. and I have it right here. Mind over mood. It's a, uh, well, over a million sold, 23 languages. It's second edition. So the authors are, uh, Dennis Greenberger, Christine Pedesky. Christine is uh, an endorser for my book. She's uh, a top person in cognitive behavior therapy. Amazing. Uh, but that's a, it's a workbook. So it has lots of exercises in it. It's all based on cognitive behavior therapy and all of us can apply it. Uh, we don't need to wait until we're struggling with whatever it is, something that brings us down, makes us anxious or whatever tough emotions we may experience, which is good and healthy. It's good to have tools sometimes. And that's what this book does. So I recommend it. I love that.
0: Yeah, I saw your list of endorsers. Very impressive list (laughs) of people. That's so, so impressive. I love it. So, well, I wish you all the luck. I know you're doing a bunch of podcasts and speaking to get your book out there. And she's done some book signings. And I know that she's getting a lot of good press and well-deserved. I mean, it's really a great book. So I hope everybody will pick up a copy, The Resilience Plan, uh, from wherever you can find it online or in bookstores, if you happen to be at one that's carrying it. And uh, just learn more about what she's doing. She's doing some great stuff out there. So thank you for being here.
1: Ah, thank you, Sue. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yes.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining today on the Visibility Factor Podcast, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to the Visibility Factor podcast. Remember that visibility starts with small steps that are intentional and consistent each day. Be bold, be visible, be the leader you were meant to be. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on all of our social media platforms, which are highlighted in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Visibility Factor podcast.